Folks, if you want to take your seats and open your Bibles up. And open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we would be glad to give you a loaner. We have some uh, Blue Pew Bibles around that I think ushers or somebody could get you. Would anyone like a, a Bible who doesn't have one? Raise your hand. We can get one to you. Everyone all set? Great. Well, we are in a mini-series. We've kind of had some uh, guest speakers and different Sundays recently. We had a guest last week. We had new members before that. So, uh, But amidst all that, we've been in this mini-series on trusting God. It's entitled, Can I Trust God? And it has addressed from the, the Bible what God says, what the Word says about trusting God. And we've been learning that Really, there are two key truths for us to understand in order to trust God. We need to know about His goodness and His greatness. As we know His goodness and we see His greatness and understand those things, that builds in us and frees us to trust Him because He's good and because He's great, because He's able to do the good that He desires. So this Sunday, we're going to look at a little more about His greatness In particular, we're going to look at a passage that talks about a few things, but one thing it talks about is God's sovereignty. The fact that God is in control. He he rules, He reigns. To be a sovereign means to rule over all. And so we're going to look at how the Word teaches us that He is sovereign. But I didn't want you guys to kind of hear that uh, abstracted from the Word. One of the best ways for us to understand what that truth is and how it functions is to look at a passage together and look at the whole thing. And see how God presents His sovereignty. And one of the key passages in Scripture that that God teaches us about His sovereignty is from Romans 8. So we're going to take a look at that and trust that God will teach us about who He is, His goodness and His greatness. But let's go before Him and ask Him to speak to us because this isn't a lecture. This isn't just information. This is, by God's grace, encountering the living God as He speaks to us through His words. Let's ask Him to do that. Lord, I am unworthy to serve you and your people. Thank you for forgiveness in Christ. Thank you that your blood covers us. And that in Christ, Lord, uh, you've forgiven us and granted us access to you, to know you and to enjoy you, to see you, to hear from you. And we ask you, Lord, to speak to us. We want to hear from you. We need Your Word. We live by Your Word, God. Your Word imparts life. And apart from Your Word, there is no life. So we ask You, Lord, to speak this morning and impart life. Change us. Refresh us. Equip us. Send us out from here to serve You and to walk in Your purposes. We thank You so much, Lord. We ask You to speak to us and show us Your glory. Show us Your goodness and greatness and be glorified in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. I will start in verse 18 and read through 39. This is a large section, but I believe it goes together for us to really grasp what's going on. We're going to read the whole thing, so let's just slow down and enjoy hearing the Word this morning. Paul has been speaking of the great Gospel in the book of Romans, and he's wrapping up a section here with, with these concluding and substantial truths. And he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this 
present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the One who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Word of God. Amen.
We need Romans 8, don't we? We need that truth. We need to hear it. We need to hear God's Word. And we live in an age where there are so many things that would pull us away from the sound truth of Romans 8. There are things out there, there are teachings out there that are deficient and sometimes even heretical that draw our attention away from all this truth packed into these verses. From what I've heard today in the African church, there's a large influence of the prosperity gospel. Have you guys heard about the prosperity gospel? It goes something like this, that Jesus came, yes, He died, and He rose again. That's truth. But He came that we might have this life, this abundant life. Yes, that's true. But the picture of abundant life is health and wealth and happiness now, materially. Certainly, He came for health and wealth and happiness, but not in that way. And much of the African church, from what I understand, has been, has been pulled into this, and it's so sad. It's so sad because it flies directly in the face of the reality for many and probably most Christians. Certainly in Africa, they live many uh, in an impoverished nation, impoverished nations there. And that truth on them saying basically you're, you are called to health and wealth and happiness now and it's just a matter of your faith. If you would only just believe enough, you'll have that car or you'll have that suit or that job flies directly in the face of their experience, and it flies directly in the face of the Scriptures. Now we can think of that and think of what we see on TV with the prosperity gospel and what we hear about in Africa and think, poor folks, but not us. But you know what? We are in a culture that has a prosperity gospel of sorts. It may not be as bold as what you hear on TV, but it's there. And it says more or less, we, we hear it this way, we speak it this way. It says that life is good. They have bumper stickers. Life is good. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. But life is good and we should enjoy it and be comfortable. And really, we should have steady jobs and healthy bodies and bodies that don't grow old really. And we should have beautiful, obedient and smart children. Who make us proud and a church full of perfect people who all get along and living in a city where housing values and SAT scores are always on the rise. It's a subtle prosperity gospel. Do you ever find yourself with that expectation in your own mind and heart? That it should be good. It should be comfortable. And does not that fly in the face of the reality of our experience? And does not that fly in the face of the reality of Romans 8 and Scripture? We need Romans 8. We need the Word of God. We need it because we need to understand its truth. We need to ground ourselves. The picture of Romans 8, to put in a sentence, I think you have this to put up on the overhead, that the Christian life is the life grounded in the hope of future glory guaranteed by an all-sovereign God, experienced amidst the groans of the hardship of awaiting our full redemption. The Christian life is a life grounded in the hope of future glory, guaranteed by an all-sovereign God, experienced amidst the groans of the hardship of awaiting our full redemption. So we're going to talk about these things. We're going to talk about the groans. We're going to talk about the guarantee. And we're going to talk about grounding ourselves. Paul speaks in verse 22. 
and says the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He introduces this whole section with this verse 18, the summary verse, where I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He introduces the idea of suffering and glory, this, this combination that is the Christian life, here and now. One day it will be all glory, no more suffering. But here and now, the Christian life is one of suffering and glory. And he, in talking about this, he says the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Creation itself is aware of the brokenness of this world. Creation itself is aware that something just isn't right. Paul personifies creation and says that it groans. Creation is made by God as a, as a place where God would dwell with His people. And mankind, made in His image, is to preside over creation. Under God, in intimate relationship with Him, ruling over all things. That was what God did in creation and called Adam and Eve too. It was glorious, but we know what happened. That our first representative human, Adam, he utterly failed to believe and obey God. And he fell from that relationship with God and dragged all of humanity with himself. And not only all of humanity, but creation itself was subjected to futility as a result. There is a curse on creation as a result of the fall of man who was to be the one who had dominion over creation under God. God allowed this fall to happen, it says. In verse 20, God allowed it to happen and the ensuing futility that He might work something better. That He might work the redemption of creation, the freedom from corruption and futility that is to come and is coming through Christ. When Christ ultimately finally conquers. Christ has come as the perfect man, the second Adam, who did not fail, who obeyed perfectly and and believed His Father and walked in His ways. And not only that, bore our sins on the cross for all and any who would trust Him, turn and trust Him. Bore our sins and rose again as the victorious second Adam. And by right, is able to rule over creation and usher in the plan that God had. For creation to be subject to mankind and God under man, mankind under God and to rule and to renew creation. So God allowed it with that in mind that He was going somewhere with it. He had a second Adam and He had this redemption. And Paul says here that creation waits with eager longing for this redemption. Creation is anticipating being renewed. Creation itself is out of whack. And it's anticipating the revelation of the sons of God as they come with Christ to rule and renew creation under His rule. But for now, we live in creation that's not fully redeemed. It's really broken. It's still under sin. There are redeemed believers, partially redeemed, not fully redeemed, living on it and influencing it, but it itself is subject to futility. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, futility of futility. All is futility. It's the same word used here. Vanity in some translations. All is futility. When we look at creation and we study, we study nature, we study 
weather, we study cultures, we study economies. What we see are failed crops, failed health, failed economies, failed societies. Yes, God sustains it, protects it, but we also see this failure everywhere. There's a brokenness around us. Anyone here had their flu shot yet? We know the swine flu is coming around again. Another example of the brokenness of creation, the futility, that things don't work right. And do you know how the flu works? Every year it kind of travels around the world, and, and every now and then there's actually a, a few different strains of the virus, but more or less it's the same thing. And it jumps from people to, to pigs to birds, back to pigs, back to people, and mutates and, and begins its evil journey once again around the world, a different virus to infect all over again. So the swine flu is another example of that. That's part of the brokenness of creation, sickness and death. We have crop failures, economic recessions, depressions, earthquakes, tidal waves, disease, epidemics, malnutrition, all part of the brokenness of creation under the dominion of man in rebellion against God. And creation groans, looking forward to things being set right. We live in this creation that is broken. We live in this creation that by nature brings trials and brings suffering. We live in it having the first fruits of the Spirit, tasting the new creation, experiencing new hearts that are no longer fully oriented towards rebellion, but have in them this love for God, this faith in God. And yet we live in these bodies and we live on this earth that isn't quite like that. It's broken. And so there's this longing, there's this groaning. Creation groans. We groan ourselves. We've tasted of the age to come. We've experienced the miracle of the new birth of the Holy Spirit. That new birth, that that amazing miracle. God Himself lives in the believer and gives us a new heart and hunger for God. This miracle of the new birth, it's a taste of what's to come. But it isn't the fullness. So we have these first fruits, but we live in these bodies that are fallen, in this world that has fallen, and there's an enemy out there. And, and, and we long for heaven. We long for full obedience and faith, yet we, we struggle. And we have weakness. And we sin. And the true believer will not want to continue in sin because of that new nature. Yes, we can be tempted. Yes, we can fall away. But the new believer has this miracle of the Spirit in him or her that longs for obedience and faith and joy in following the Lord. We long to be free of sin. We long for full redemption. We know it's just not right. There's something wrong. We long for that. We long for the day when we won't doubt and struggle and sin. We long for the day when our hearts remain steady on the Lord. Versus the battle that we face. Continual repentance and faith once again. Thank God that He's there to to bring us back. That He's working in us to call us back. But oh, won't it be glorious the day when, when that won't happen that way? There won't be those wanderings? You'll be in fourth gear for the Lord all the time in everything you do? We long for that. We long for the day when 
Redemption is full for us and for creation. When we don't have to bury young husbands and friends and watch vibrant saints laid low by blood clots. Nor hear of the murder of devout brothers executed in Somalia by Al-Qaeda for simply delivering Bibles to the church. When our beloved friends and family don't struggle with doubts, don't come under the cloud of depression, when we don't have to be parted anymore, when we don't have to anguish over loved ones rejecting the only real hope and truth and love they could ever have, when the effect of sin and death is finally and fully done away with, we groan as we long for that day. That's life for us as believers. But you know what's amazing? Paul goes on. Not only does creation grow, not only do we groan, but likewise the Spirit. An amazing truth in Romans 8 is that not only do we groan, but the Holy Spirit, God, the infinite, eternal One, God in the person of the Holy Spirit, groans with us, helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. We don't understand. We're puzzled. We're confused. Why God? Why this way? Why now? Why this trial? Why this saint? What am I to do? Lord, I want to obey You, but I always find this thing dragging me down. There's this doubt that I'm always wrestling with. There's this weakness. I always come short. Just, just this week even, as I was preparing, just aware in my own life of just how I fall short. There are sins of commission and omission, and we engage them both. Thank God for a Savior. But I was just aware this week, sins of omission. Just, just freshly aware of, of ways that I just did not love my kids enough. Did not love my wife enough. I'm teaching uh, at a middle school. I'm teaching Latin. Kind of learning Latin as I go somewhat. And, and I just realized, you know what? I squandered my education as a kid. I was only interested in parties and sports. And I was a fool. I went to a great school. I could have learned a lot of these things. Why now at 45 I'm having to learn what these guys are learning at 11 years old? Missed opportunities. Just aware of that. My weakness. And, and I found comfort as I sat there and just prayed, Lord, please forgive me. Help me. And just giving it to Him and being aware that the Spirit grows as well. We don't know what we should pray. But the Spirit helps us in our weakness. With groanings too deep for words. These groanings are groanings of the Spirit too deep for words as He's aware of our need and as He intercedes with the Father. Now, it's not speaking in tongues per se. That's a wonderful gift, a blessing for many believers, but not all believers. This is something for all believers. This is something going on between the Spirit and the Father. It's inaudible. And it's the Spirit groaning on our behalf, interceding as we are weak and as we groan and long for full redemption, as we struggle with sin and long for heaven to come and God to do His work. The Spirit groans and intercedes to the Father. The Father hears the Spirit. He knows the mind of the Spirit as the Spirit intercedes for us. Isn't that amazing? God Himself, and we know Christ Himself as well, is interceding for us in our weakness. 
It is an amazing comfort to know that the all-powerful, all-wise, glorious God intercedes for us, is sympathetic for us and with us in our groans, in our struggles. He's not distant saying, come on, get it right. He Himself, through the Spirit, is groaning with us to the Father. Praying the things we don't know what we should pray about. His sympathy for us is amazing. And this passage in Romans clearly teaches us that. Paul goes on, though, to bring comfort through other truths. He brings comfort to us, God Himself, through Paul, through the understanding of His sympathy and His groaning with us as we groan and creation groans. He also brings comfort to us in the knowledge of His sovereignty. And that's what the next section is. The knowledge of a sovereign, gracious God who guarantees the answer to our groans. There is a sovereign, gracious God who guarantees the answers to our groans, who guarantees the answers to the Spirit's groans. They are not futile groans just made to somebody who who is impotent, who can't do anything. They are groans made to one who is all sovereign and will have His way. So Paul says, and we know these things. We are aware of these things that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are calling according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. God is not only near us in our suffering, fully sympathizing, but He is also over and above us in all these things as the sovereign, all-powerful God who commands our destiny. Those truths go together. His sympathy and His sovereignty go together. And they're never to be taken apart. And this is ground we have to tread on lightly. Because our puny brains don't understand. We don't understand. How can He be sympathetic and sovereign? How can He be sympathetic when He knows and controls all things? Even the things that cause us pain. He knew about it. He controls it. He's over it. How can He be sympathetic? Even our foolish choices. He's over and sovereign over those things. And has planned them and determined them in some mysterious way we don't know where He never sins Himself. He's holy, but He's sovereign over it. How can He be sympathetic? Or, how can He be sovereign when He's saddened and broken by the evil in the world and the foolish but real choices of those made in His image? How can He be sovereign when He groans? What's up with that? I don't understand it. None of us will ever understand it. God is not a man. God does not have to follow the rules of logic as we understand them. Now God, I believe, is logical, but He's above logic. And Scripture never reconciles those two realities, that He's sympathetic, and our choices are real, and He's sovereign. It never tells us how it works out. It presents them both. He's sympathetic, and He's sovereign. And they're both to be comfort for us as believers. And they both are to be 
invitations for an unbeliever to run to Him who is good and compassionate and powerful. These two things go together without diminishing either in the slightest degree. So just as we enjoy the knowledge that He's sympathetic, we are to enjoy as believers the knowledge that He's sovereign. It's for our comfort. For those He foreknew, those He anticipated before time, those who He saw before time, and, and, and before they had done anything, right or wrong, good or bad, He knew them and chose to covenant Himself with those. He chose to make them His own. He set His affections on them. For, for reasons that are His alone, we don't know. He foreknew them. Those He foreknew, He looked ahead, and we don't know who those are. If you are a believer in Christ, we know you're one of them. But we don't know who that's going to be. You'll be believers. But it's something we don't understand fully. But if you're a believer, it's to be a comfort. Because if you're a believer, He foreknew you. And He saw you before you had done anything. And He set His affection on you. And the reason you're a believer here today is not because you happened to figure it out. And you got it right where your friends didn't. It's because in His mercy, He said, this one I'm going to grab from rebellion and bring back to me. He foreknew and He predetermines. He predestined that this one is going to get rescued. And it goes on from there. He predetermined that that you and I as believers might be conformed to the image of His Son. He predestined. For what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. His purpose and plan for the believer is to conform us, men and women, boys and girls, to the image of His Son. That's what He's predetermined. To rescue us from our sin. To fill us with the Holy Spirit in that. To transform us here and one day take us to glory. For those whom He predetermined, He also called. Those He predetermined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. He predetermined that He would conform us, that He would rescue us. And therefore, He called us at a point in time. He gave us ears to hear and understand. Your my conversion is ultimately to the credit of God giving us ears to hear. Breathing on us by the Spirit. And, and some message that you probably heard before all of a sudden took life on. And it was precious to you. And, and you wanted Christ and His forgiveness and His love and His Lordship where before you didn't. And you had faith and you desired to turn. He called us. And in calling us, we come to the Gospel. We come to Christ. And in Christ, Christ lived the righteous life and fully satisfied the Father and died for His people's sins. Past, present, future, entirely. All your sins ever done, ever doing, ever will do. He died for those sins and paid for them by His blood completely. They are all paid for forever. Today, tomorrow, the next day, yesterday, all paid for. And He rose again on the third day. Father was pleased with what He did. And through that resurrection, He releases to all of us this wonderful new life in the Spirit. This ability to believe and follow and love. Those He justified, 
Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Paul says it like it's past tense. Because it's a done deal for you, the believer. What he started, he finishes. And if you're a believer, he will finish it. This is to be comfort for us as believers. To know that amidst this life of hardship and frustration, caught between the joy of the kingdom and the reality of this broken world, that He sympathizes with us and He's sovereign over all things for us. He is in charge. He will get the job done. We know His sympathy. We know His sovereignty. He is Lord. It's hard to think of a a metaphor to picture this. I had the thought of of God as a great conductor. And we are in this orchestra. And we've got our instruments, our French horns and our violins, whatever they might be. And He's conducting. And and we're playing our instruments. And we really don't know how to do it. We're kind of nearsighted. We can't really see the music on the stand. And when we look up, we kind of see the conductor conducting. We try to follow. We squeak out noises. But somehow the conductor knows the squeaks that are going to come. He knows the noises. And not only is his band trying to play, but there's those around it as well who are, who are shouting. They don't like what's going on. They don't like him conducting. They're heckling. But we find that as he conducts, he somehow weaves it all together. The heckling, the shouts, the, the squeaks, the, the noises. And there's a symphony that starts to emerge. And we play, and it mixes together. He knew what we were going to play, but more than that, the conductor actually determined what would happen when. Somehow, mysteriously, we don't understand it. But he not only knew about it, but he even determined it. He, he determined that that heckler would say that. And yet that heckler's choice to say it is real. It's his choice. But God determined it. We don't understand that. They're together. He, he has conductor can do that. And he has this symphony play. And we play. And we start to squeak. And God make these noises. He squawks. And he, it comes together. starts to form a symphony. And, and you know what? Over time, it gets better. And there's more harmony and beauty. And soon that orchestra is transformed in its ability. And it plays incredible music that, that fills the creation with glorious sounds and, 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 and climaxes in this incredible, incredible symphony that we've never heard before. And at the end of it, we look at the sound and we look back at the whole thing and we say, that's amazing. It is glorious. That's what Romans 8 is about. God is the great conductor. And if you're in the band, He knows what you're experiencing. He's planned for it. And He's going to bring you to completion. And you will play one day perfectly. And you will see one day fully. And you will know the fullness of it. And you will see how He worked it all out. And His perfect justice and wisdom and goodness. And you'll give Him glory. We're to comfort ourselves in this sovereignty of God and His sympathy with us. Finally, we are to ground ourselves in hope amidst the hardship of life. 
Paul finishes this section after these wonderful truths about his sympathy and his sovereignty. He finishes this sec- section by kind of peppering us with questions. Throwing these questions, boom, 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 one after another, to drive the point home. So he says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God himself has fully justified them. He's given us his son, who's crucified to pay the just and right penalty for our sins on the cross, who's risen to new life for the faithful. We are fully justified in him. Who is to condemn? Jesus himself stands as our sure and eternal advocate. Jesus, the righteous one. Who is to condemn? The answer is no one. Who is to bring a charge against the elect? The answer is no one. What shall we say to these things? What? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And, and Paul gives this list of things, saying, should it be this or that? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. These are all very serious things. This is not little things. Bad mornings, uh, spoiled food, you didn't get your favorite breakfast. This is, these are huge things. These are tribulation. A topsy-turvy crazy world politically for the believer. Tribulation, distress, persecution. I mentioned it just read last week, brother in Somalia delivering Bibles to a church, underground church. Twenty-four Bibles in his bag, stopped by the, the Al-Qaeda type guys, and got, got his bag. No one on the bus said anything. No one would say whose bag it was. They looked through it, found pictures with the guy's face in one of the pictures, shot him. No questions. Boom, just dead. Young, young man. Well, actually, he was 65, had a family, had a young family, I believe. Persecution. Those are serious things. Show those things? Famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are guarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Quoting from the Psalms, I believe, where just this reality for the believers. At times we just think, this is nuts. To be a believer means to just get slaughtered. And we don't see it now in America, but we might see it someday. We see it elsewhere for much and most of Christian history. That's been the case. But Paul's answer is no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Why? Because He sympathizes with us and because He's sovereign over all things. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, this list is just the, the worst that could be thrown at us, nor angels, nor rulers, demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. Not tribulations, not troubles, not distress, not doubts, not depression, not unemployment or underemployment, not blood clots, not cancer, not premature death, not famine, not the sword, not martyrdom, not stress at work or demotions or persecutions or failures or disappointments or poor choices or robbery, or slander, or gossip, or hospital bills, or bankruptcy, or rebellious children, or ignorance, or weakness, or loneliness, confusion, death, life, angels, demons, your past, your present, not your future, not governments, not politics, not hell or heaven, not the cosmos, not the microscopic world. There is nothing that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. 
It is sure. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He will accomplish it. Amen. Hallelujah. The band could come up as we close. We're to ground ourselves in this truth. This isn't just knowledge for us. This is life. This is the power to live your day. This is the power to live unashamed and unafraid for the Lord. This is the power to take risks for the Lord and not worry about trying to conserve things in this life. This is about living for what truly matters. This is truth we need and we need to ground ourselves in it and let it shape us and change us. I think we have a couple pictures to show. On the night that Abraham Lincoln was shot on April 14, 1865, he was carrying various things in his pocket. Is there a picture to show of the contents of his pocket? These are on display at the Library of Congress. Some of these items are to be expected. Uh, two pairs of glasses, a lens polisher, a pocket knife, a watch fob. I don't know what that is, but I guess you carried it around your pocket back then. A handkerchief and a brown leather wallet. And inside that wallet were some unusual things that you wouldn't expect to see. Among them were nine newspaper clippings. You can show the next slide. And there were newspaper clippings that said something important about Abraham Lincoln. And some of them were very favorable. And there was one, just feature one, that was a clipping of a speech by a man, an English statesman, John Brighton, I think was his name. John Bright. And in his speech, he had some very favorable things to say about Mr. Lincoln. He says, I believe that the effect of Mr. Lincoln's re-election in England and in Europe and indeed throughout the world will be this. It will convince all men that the integrity of your great country will be preserved. And it will show that Republican institutions with an instructed and patriotic people can bear a nation safely and steadily through the most desperate perils. This was a newspaper article that had come out some time previously. Abraham Lincoln folded it up and put it in his wallet and carried it around. We think of Lincoln and we think of a great man. In his day, he was not thought of as a great man by many. He was slandered. He was hated. He was killed. He was shot to death. And he found himself at, at times alone, bearing the unimaginable burden of the cruelest and costliest war America's ever faced. And he certainly groaned amidst that trial. I think that's why he had that newspaper article. Because he needed to find comfort in those words. We're like Abraham Lincoln. We live in a world that is broken. We live in the struggle for sin. We long for the resolution of all these things. God's given us Romans 8 to carry around in our wallet. Look at that truth. To remember that truth and let that truth, let these truths fill us and change us and strengthen us for life. And in it and through it that God might be glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we need this truth. We need these truths from Romans 8 so much, God. And Lord, I confess that I Often, often am believing a contrary gospel. I set my hope on things that are not truly 
worthy of my hope. Good things, but not great things. Not You. Forgive me. Forgive us for that, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that You would change us by the truths of Romans 8. That the reality of Your sympathy and the wonder of Your sovereignty would redefine how we look at life, and how we live, and how we face trials, how we walk our days out. That You would transform us, God. You would strengthen us. You would empower us. You would commission us to live in this world according to these truths. For Your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and conclude with